Turn with me to John 4, the Gospel of John, chapter 4. We're going to start with the 27th verse. We're going to go to the 42nd verse. This is the fourth and final part of the woman at the well. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out from the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper So sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. What we see here in this section of John's Gospel, like I said, this is the last and final part of the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well, And I hope and pray that you have seen this in the last three times I preached on the woman at the well, is Jesus' revelation of himself as Messiah, as the Christ. This, I believe, is the main thread that ties this text together. But not only this text, but John's entire gospel. For John himself gives us the purpose of his gospel, and I said this the last three times, in the the 20th chapter and the 31st verse, He says, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. And the very last time I spoke, we saw Jesus revealing His identity to this Samaritan sinful woman. In verses 25 and 26, we see that the woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I am, I who speak to you am he. <clears throat> this is a pivotal point in this section. Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Christ. That is the most important question anybody will ever answer. It will actually determine their destiny. Who is Jesus Christ? And not only do we understand God's revelation of Jesus the Messiah in this passage that we're going to look at, but we, uh, that we actually looked at, 
But we understand Jesus crossed religious and cultural boundaries that no religious Jew would ever do and offered living water, salvation to her. And out of that salvation would flow streams of water from her inner being, which she later would receive. And then and only then she would truly worship the true and living God in spirit and in truth. For that's who the Father seeks. She would worship God from the depths of her heart in truth. And what makes this such a unique passage of scripture? Well, it's unique in this, because Israel always thought of themselves as the chosen ones, and they were. God said through the prophet Amos in, this, in the third chapter, the second verse, he says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. However, God promised Abraham and his descendants would become a great nation and that through them the other nations would be blessed. But instead of becoming a light to the nations of the world, they were oppressed by her enemies and eventually they were captured and most of you know the story, they were sent into exile because of what? Their disobedience. But God's promise never wavered concerning His covenant with them. They, they were certainly a privileged people. So privileged that the gospel came through them. It was preached to them first. And Messiah himself was a Jew. He came from the nation of Israel. But God is not the God of the Jews only, but the Gentiles also. Isaiah said in the 45th chapter, he said, Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. <clears throat> and as a preview of worldwide evangelism, Christ reveals himself as the Messiah, not to the Jew, but to a Samaritan woman. This is, the, this is why it's so unique. Christ's first public revelation as Messiah was not to a Jew, but a Samaritan. As I, I'm not going to give you the whole background again, but the Samaritans were a despised people. There was great hostility between the Jew and the Samaritan. And we come to this section tonight, and we see Christ now teaching His disciples the urgency the timing and the nature of gospel work, the nature of Christ's mission. And my preposition or proposition to you tonight is this. We need to be consumed with doing the Father's will and spreading the gospel together now. And in our text tonight, we see this exemplified by Christ Himself. A few things we're going to learn tonight. Christ was consumed with doing the Father's will. Consumed. He teaches on timely opportunities for mission, for gospel work. He teaches on the nature of mission, partnership. One sows, another reap, one reaps. So let me quickly summarize the last three messages. Jesus, Jesus has this beautiful conversation with a Samaritan woman. He offers her living water, reveals to her sinful past, tells her about work, the true worship, and reveals to her that He is the Messiah. And at this point... At this point, the disciples return. Verse 27. <clears throat> Just then the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? <clears throat> the disciples came back at the very moment Jesus finished his conversation. Not a minute earlier, not a minute later. If they had come back earlier, 
What would have happened? They would have interrupted this wonderful, convicting conversation before it reached its dramatic climax. If they had come back later, they would have missed the declaration of his messiahship. <clears throat> what do we see here? Divine providence at work. God is divine, and he knows the timing for everything, and everything he does is for his purposes. Praise God. <clears throat> and verse 27 says. His disciples marveled. They were amazed that he was actually speaking with the woman. And I'm sure it was compounded by the fact that it was a Samaritan woman. I said this the last few times too. Not only did Jesus speak with a woman, but he spoke with a despised Samaritan woman. Not only did he speak with a despised Samaritan woman, he spoke with a despised, sinful Samaritan woman. In the Jewish mind... You never do that. <clears throat> no doubt they shared, the disciples shared the common opinion of the day that, and I quote, a man shall not be alone with a woman in an inn, not even with his sister or his daughter, on the account of what men may think. A man shall not talk with a woman in the street, not even with his own wife, and especially not with another woman on account of what men might say. This is the way the Jewish mind thought in that day. And the disciples, of course, thought like that too. Yet they wouldn't ask him, what do you seek or why are you talking with them? <clears throat> they must have known, to a degree, that Jesus was not bound by the Jewish expectations, by their traditions, and by their prejudices. An important lesson for his disciples to learn, which is, is the emphasis in this passage which we're going to look at. And disciples are going to learn some necessary, necessary lessons. The nature, the urgency, and the partnership of his mission. Jesus is going to disciple them now. Now he's going to disciple them. He's going to teach them important lessons about gospel mission. <clears throat> so the woman leaves. His disciples urge him to eat something. Listen to verse 31. Meanwhile, disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat! <clears throat> and Jesus now begins to teach them. And he says in verse 32 to 34, But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And I find it amazing that divine providence allowed the disciples to leave so Jesus could minister to the, to the Samaritan woman. And I think it's equally as amazing that the divine providence again allowed the woman to leave so Jesus could teach his disciples. The first thing he teaches them is the nature of his mission. Gospel work. And when I say mission, I'm talking about gospel work. As the disciples are urging him to eat, he says, I have food that you do not know. And this baffles them. They, they can't understand what he's talking about. They just completed an assignment that he asked them to do. Go into the sound of Sychar and, and bring some food back. And they come back with it, and now we're giving to Jesus what they purchased. But he says, I have food that you know nothing about. And they say, but no one has brought him anything to eat. Which is probably the better translation. In, the, in these translations, it's more of a question, but in the Greek, it's more of, a, more of a, uh, a statement, like, but no one has brought him anything to eat. How can he have something to eat? And Jesus responds to their confusion. Just as the Samaritan woman was confused about living water, remember? 
Jesus said, you know, give me a drink of water. And, and, and she said, but you have nothing to draw with. And he was talking about spiritual water. He was getting to the point of spiritual water. And just as he's trying to get to the point of spiritual food, they don't understand either. They're confused. And Jesus begins to respond to their confusion. Jesus always wants to get people's minds off of earthly things and press their thinking to another level, which is spiritual realities. In essence, Jesus says, this is my food. This is what really satisfies me. This is what I'm consumed with, the nature of my mission. This is the nature of my mission. Number one, to do my Father's will. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, before his crucifixion, was deeply troubled and distressed. Many of us remember that. He, he was so troubled, so distressed, that Luke's Gospel said that he sweat that were like drops of blood. And realizing that he would endure the full cup of his father's wrath against sin, Jesus prayed, O Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now there was no conflict between the father and the son of wills. It was just Jesus voluntarily giving up his will to the father's will. He voluntarily surrendered his will to the Father. And what the disciples did not realize is Jesus had his fill while they were away getting food. He ministered the gospel to this Samaritan woman. He was doing exactly what his Father wanted him to do. This was his food. And there was more to come. Through this feasting with the Samaritan woman, many more would come to Christ, namely a town of Samaria which we'll look at in a little while. Jesus knows this, and we need to know this. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So the nature of His mission, the nature of gospel work, was to do His Father's will. And the second thing was to accomplish His work. In this final prayer, before His death, in John 17.4, he prayed this, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. He accomplished the work that the Father gave him to do. When Christ prayed on the cross, it is finished. It was not about him dying. It was about Christ completing the work of redemption the Father had sent him to do. He didn't only want to do the will of God, he wanted to finish the work of God. This is the way Jesus lived his life. He walked in perfect perfect obedience to the Father's desires and completed the work He sent them to do. This was His joy and this was His true sustenance. <clears throat> so the essential character of His mission was obedience to the Father. The doing and completing of all the Father had called Him to do. The next thing Jesus teaches His disciples is the urgency of His mission. Let's read verses 35 and 36. So there's the nature of the mission of gospel work, doing the Father's will and completing His work, and then there's the urgency of His mission. Do not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. 
Verse 35, there are yet four months, then comes harvest. Maybe may a common proverb. The theologians are still trying to figure that out. If it was a proverb, it was an actual, if that, if that was a reality. Or it may indicate that the incident at the well took place in December, four months before the spring harvest in April. Whatever the point was, whichever one is true, the point Jesus was making is he's talking about urgency here. He's talking about the gospel is urgent. There was no need to wait for the harvest. The spiritual fields are white for harvest. The harvest is ready now. That's what he was telling disciples. And by the way, ripening grain isn't white. It's not white, it's green. Jesus said, lift up your eyes. See the fields are white for harvest. What is he talking about here? It was the Samaritans. Remember, the Samaritan woman went back to the town and told them about Christ. And now they're all coming across the fields in their white garment. And now the fields are blending in with the brilliant green grain. And it looked white. So Jesus is saying, look, as the Samaritans are coming towards them, look, the fields are ready, they're white. The harvest is ready now. They were coming to see and hear Jesus. The same four months, and then the harvest may be uh, agriculturally true, but not true spiritually. It's urgent. It's now. Jesus was teaching his followers the secret of his heart. Urgency. Now. We have to learn this as a church. As a Christian. We desperately need a sense of urgency in our evangelism. Our fields in Bay Ridge or wherever you are are ripe for harvest. Why is it urgent? Because souls are lost. Souls are dying and going to hell. They're at stake. Fields of human souls were ripening all around the disciples and were now ready for reaping. And verse 36 says, The one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. Basically what he's telling his disciples here is their, their um, responsibility to partnership in the harvest of souls would result in wages. The Master God, Jehovah God, play, pays liberally. What is the re wage or reward? It's joy. It's joy. It's joy from gathering souls from the pit of hell, from God's wrath into His marvelous kingdom. Listen to Luke 15.7. It says, just so, I, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. There is inexpressible joy in sharing Christ and seeing someone come to faith in Christ. I don't know about you, but if you've never experienced that, it's something you need to experience. But the only way you're ever going to experience that is to going out and sharing the gospel. The sower and the reaper rejoice together. Verse 37 and 38. For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Most of the time, the sower and the reaper are different people. In this text, the disciples were going to reap the harvest, which was the Samaritans. They were coming and Jesus said, look, the harvest is ready. They didn't sow, but they'll reap. Others have sowed the seed in the Samaritan's heart. It was others who prepared the way, not the disciples. 
Moses, the Old Testament prophets, even John the Baptist, had part in preparing the Samaritans' hearts. And, and even Jesus, with the Samaritan woman, he's actually the Lord of the harvest. Jesus talked with this woman at Jacob's well and was sowing seed, and his disciples were going to, going to reap a harvest of Samaritans. Although they played no part in sowing the seed, Jesus sent them to reap that for which they did not labor. Others have labored, and they entered into the labor. So you see the difference. One sows, but another one might reap. Let me bring some clarity to this with an example from the story of George Mueller. George Mueller was a he was German-born, and he was an evangelist and a missionary. And he had a, an extraordinary gift of faith. And he, always, he never asked for one cent. This was in the 1800s. And, and he built orphanages. And had, you know, he, it took a lot of money to build these orphanages, and the equipment and the food and the people and so on and so forth. But he always prayed and always prayed, and always prayed, and had this extraordinary gift of faith that he never asked anybody for a penny. And the day he had to meet some financial needs for the orphanages, the day is when, that day, it was always there. The money, the food, whatever it was, was always there. So he was a great man of God. And early in his life, Mueller made the acquaintance of three men, and he began to pray for their salvation. Mueller lived a long time, but when he died, none of those men had yet trusted Christ. It is recorded in his diary that he prayed for the men daily during all those years. But that is not the end. The glorious fact is that all three of those men did meet Christ. Two of them in their 70s and one in their 80s. Mueller sowed, but someone else reaped. Don't be discouraged if you're sowing seed and you don't see someone coming to Christ, someone else might reap that. Whether we are sowing or reaping, we are to be permeated with the sense of urgency. The gospel is urgent. So there's, number one, the nature of his mission to do his Father's will and to accomplish his will and to accomplish his work. Number two, the urgency of his mission, sowing and reaping, is now, it's not tomorrow, it's now. And there's a third point Jesus taught his disciple, partnership in his mission. One sows, another reap. Another one reaps. That's partnership. Christian labor is never, never, never a solitary effort. It's never a solitary effort. It's a partnership. Amen. And as I said before, Moses, the Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist, and the Lord of the harvest, Jesus himself, sowed and others like the disciples reaped. It's partnership. Christians are called to go where God has already done the hard work. In 1 Corinthians 3.7, Paul told the church at, Corinthians, at Corinth, he said, So neither he who plants nor he who waters anything, but only God gives the growth. God is the only one who can grant salvation, but he chooses to use people in getting his message of salvation to a lost and a dying world. Thus, He partners with us. We are also partners with each other in the body of Christ. You're not alone. We're partners with each other in spreading the gospel. In verse 38 again, Jesus said, I sent you, I sent you to reap 
that for which you did not labor. Bruce Milne says concerning that verse, he says, it makes the point that the mission of Jesus and that of the disciples are indissolubly linked. Can't break that apart. The gospel is this. The body of Christ and God. We're all together with God. The disciples were now getting ready to reap a great harvest. And as Jesus was speaking to the Samaritans, as Jesus was speaking, the Samaritans were now beginning to come to him. Let's read verses 28 to 30 and then 40 to 42. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming to him. Verse 40. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard us for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. We read here the Samaritans believed. Their faith was based on two things. The woman's testimony... Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be a Christ? The woman's testimony. And Christ had such a profound impact on this woman's life that she immediately began evangelizing in spite of her marred reputation. She went back to the town and began to tell the whole town about Christ. And Bruce Milne says this. He says, and I think he's right. I'm saying I think he's right. There are no more attractive evangelists than those who have newly discovered Jesus. I'm a Christian 35 years and I always love when I see people just come to Christ. They are the best evangelists. That shouldn't be, by the way. We, we should never lose our spiritual zeal to, to talk and share Christ. Never. But new Christians are zealous more than uh, sometimes you want to believe. And because of this woman's testimony, many Samaritans now want to see Jesus and to hear Jesus for themselves. So they go to meet him. They ask him to stay, and he did, two days. And during those two days, many more believed. Obviously, he was preaching the gospel to them. So the Samaritan's faith was not only based on the woman's testimony, but it was also based on Christ's witness. They heard Christ for themselves. You could share the gospel with somebody, but then they want to start reading the Bible for themselves and seeing what Christ says to them. Their time with Jesus confirmed the woman's testimony. Even, even the woman's testimony may not have been polished as Christ. You know, Christ was perfectly doctrinally, theologically sound. This woman's was not. She just knew Christ knows everything about me. Can he be the Christ? Think about this. Christ's witness to the Samaritans, of course, was theologically correct and many believed. The woman obviously could not give the townspeople all the right theological answers. But you know what they saw? They saw a changed life. This woman, once again, you've got to know the history. This Samaritan woman, was, she had five husbands and was living with a man. And she had a bad reputation in the Samaritan community. But they saw a changed life. Come see a man who told me everything about my life. 
you condemned me, he didn't. What makes Jesus so attractive to people? Is it his omniscience? Is it his, is it his compassion? Is it his mercy? It is his grace? Is it his grace? What is it? I think John 3.17 sums it up when it says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And because of the woman's testimony, the text final statement in verse 42, it says, And we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. It's an important statement because that was the fruit of her labor. Their faith is not dependent on someone else. The Samaritan's faith, I should say, is not dependent on someone else's, but rather they now have experienced Christ for themselves. And this section concludes with a powerful proclamation from the Samaritans. And we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. Why is this statement so important? Two reasons. Because in ancient times, this title was given to various gods, and it was also given to the, the emperor in Rome. But now it's given to its rightful owner, Jesus Christ. And because the Samaritans' confessed, confession stands in clear contrast with, guess who? The Pharisees. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Remember when he was in um, Palm Sunday? And they looked at all the people screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna. And they said, look, the whole world is going after him. Well, yeah, you're right. Once again, Isaiah said, Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. Let's conclude this. Christ's mission, his gospel work, is to be our mission. The harvest is no different now as it was then. There are souls to save. People are lost and need to be evangelized. You might feel uncomfortable with the next few statements I'm going to make, but you need to hear this. Why are so many Christians desensitized? Why is there no urgency in gospel work? Because people are not passionate about Christ. When you're passionate about Christ, you will go out and share the gospel. If you're not passionate about Christ, you're not going to share the gospel. Why would you, be, why would you share the gospel of someone who you're not passionate with? When you're passionate about Christ, you can't keep quiet about Him. This is not about being a theological brainiac. It's not about that. It's about sharing what you know about Christ. That He's forgiven my sins. That He is God taken on human flesh. He's forgiven my sins. And I'm trusting in Him now. This is what should sustain you. This is what sustains me. You may study the Word, pray and have devotions, but something is missing in your life. Is something missing in your life tonight? You say, I pray. I read the Scriptures. Maybe some of you don't even do that. I'm not condemning you here. There's not judgment here. This is, let the Spirit do its convicting work. You might pray. You might study. You might do a lot of things, but you may not be involved in His work. 
you are redeemed for this, to serve God. And I'd like to read something from the Prince of Preachers, Charles, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who challenged his own congregation with this blunt confrontation. Some of you good people who do nothing except go to public meetings, the Bible readings and prophetic conferences, and other forms of spiritual dissipation, would be a good deal better Christians if you would look after the poor and needy around you. If you would just tuck up your sleeves for work and go and tell the gospel to dying men, you would find your spiritual health mightily restored. For every much of the sickness of Christians comes through their having nothing to do. All feeding and no working makes men spiritually deceptics. Be idle, careless, with nothing to live for, nothing to care for, no sinner to pray for, no backslider to lead back to the cross, no tr trembler to encourage, no little child to tell of a savior, no gray-headed man to enlighten in the things of God, no object in fact to live for. And no wonder if you begin to groan and to murmur and to look within until you are ready to die of despair. Dr. Kent Hughes says there is spiritual sustenance in serving Christ by caring about others. This is the Christian's food, doing the will of God and finishing the work he has called us to do. His work of evangelism is urgent. It's not tomorrow, folks. It's today. And we're partners in this together. All of us together are partners in this. We work together in spreading the gospel. You may sow a seed. Speak the gospel to someone and someone else may lead them to Christ. You may sow, someone else may reap. You rejoice together. I may speak to someone about Christ and lay the groundwork. I might sow a seed. And Brian may follow up and actually lead them to Christ. We rejoice together. We are partners. There is no jealousy in the gospel work. Amen. Are you actively sharing? Are you passionate about Christ? I can't answer that for you. Do you actively share Christ? It's not the pastor's job to bring people into the church. It's all of our jobs. We need to understand and love people enough to realize that they are spiritually sick. The world is sick. The world is sick with sin. And the world is going to hell. And we believe in election, yes. But we believe God uses us to share the gospel. It is urgent. It is an urgent issue here. To share the gospel. To be filled with His Holy Spirit is the only way we can do this. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord. We praise you. For your goodness, Lord, to save us when we didn't deserve it. To save us when we were shaking our fist in your face. To save us when we were going our own way. You sent your only Son, Christ, took a coat of flesh suffered and died on a cross and was resurrected back to your right hand. 
We thank you, Lord. But we wouldn't have heard it unless somebody told us. Unless somebody understood the urgency of the gospel message. We wouldn't have heard it. Because somebody shared the gospel with us. Because somebody was consumed with your will. Because somebody wanted to finish your work. God, help us. Help us to see that. That someone did it for us. Now we need to do it for others. That our true food is not the spiritual, is not the physical food of this life. It's not the things of this life. These, you said heaven and earth are going to pass away, but my word will never pass away. You told us the temporal things of this life are gone. They're passing away, they're fading away. This world is dying, it's fading away. The true spiritual food in our lives is doing your will, loving your will, being consumed with your will, and accomplishing your work. Oh God, I pray for my brothers and sisters tonight here. That they would get a sense of urgency in their hearts. That they would rep repent of complacency, Lord. And starting this moment tonight, if they are true born-again Christians, go out and start sharing their faith as you lead them, Lord. And God, we know we cannot do this without the power of your Holy Spirit. Fill us with your Holy Spirit to do this. Help us not to grieve the Holy Spirit by denying, denying somebody of the gospel. Fill us, God. We need your Holy Spirit to do this. We thank you, God, that you gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit. We thank you, God. You said if we ask for the Holy Spirit, you're not going to give us bread, you're not going to give us a stone, you're not going to give us a fish, you're not going to give us anything, you're going to give us the Holy Spirit. But we have to admit that we need to be filled with your Spirit. Help us tonight, God. Help us to turn away from the worthless things in this life and look up and see that the harvest is white and it's ready. And that we're going to do this together. Help us to see the harvest in Bay Ridge, that it's white and it's ready. Or maybe on our jobs, wherever we go, Lord. And God, of course, if someone doesn't know you, there's really nothing to share. We pray that, that if someone doesn't know you tonight, they would come to know you. They would, re they would repent of their sins and turn to you and trust in you. Holy Spirit, do your work in our hearts tonight. Let your word, and it won't, it will never return void, but let it do its work in the hearts of your people. Please, we're begging you, God. God, we know this is a serious issue. Gospel preaching is a serious issue. It's not just for the pulpit. It's, it's for every one of us. Help us to do that in Christ's precious name.